Welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. Five locations, stlmasses.com, doing curbside delivery, online ordering, all that good stuff during quarantine. But most importantly, we're here to talk to our guest, Bob Costas, his annual visit. Thank you, Bob, once again. Hey, Brad. How are you? I'm good. How are you handling quarantine? Where are you? Tell me everything that's happening in your world. Like how? I'm, I'm not telling you everything that's happening <laughs> in my world. Uh, I wish that I was in St. Louis on a more regular basis, and I had already looked at the proposed schedule for MLBN telecasts, and there were a few Cardinal games early in the season. I was looking forward to doing what I almost always do, which is not only come in to broadcast the games, but come in a few days early and stay a few days late so I can uh, take in more than just the game that I'm broadcasting and spend time with family and friends there, but uh, everything is on hold, so... Um, I'm, I'm fine. My entire family is fine, healthy, safe, secure. So we're grateful for that. And we're just waiting it out like everybody else. So what do you do with your time? I know a lot of podcasting, I like, but you're doing a lot of interviews, which is very, very nice of you to join us here. And then I've heard you on a few others, uh, but, uh, basically like everybody else, just kind of eating hot pockets and a lot of chips. Uh, I'm avoiding the hot pockets and chips. I was more resourceful than that, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, I'm reading some of the books that have been on the shelf and I haven't had a chance to get to, uh, watching films, both old and new, uh, taking in some of the archival games that all four sports-specific networks, baseball, base, basketball, hockey, and football, have. I've watched some of those. And in talking to my buddy Al Michaels, we both kind of expressed surprise that now and then you'll be watching a game that pops up, taken out of the uh, the archives on one of these networks, and then you realize, wait a minute, that's me. Wait a minute, I did that game 30 years ago. Uh, him more so than me, because I split my time between hosting and play-by-play, and he's always been a premier play-by-play man. But uh, in both the NBA and in baseball, uh, I've found myself listening to at least portions of games that not only did I broadcast a long time ago, but back in the 80s and 90s, it was harder to get access to a tape. You had to get a VHS tape. Somebody had to tape it at home. Now you can watch it immediately on Vimeo if you want to. So it's easier to review what you've done um, now than it used to be. So a lot of this stuff is like, you know, I don't remember having done that or having said exactly that, but it's kind of amusing to watch it. Yeah, I would, I would assume it is. It's kind of fun to see your old stuff. But I've seen you pop up a lot on uh, the first topic of the day here, Michael Jordan's documentary. Um, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a, a just great television. I want 40 episodes. I mean, after this weekend, I know it ends. Um, I just wanted to get your first overall thought on this, on this, on this piece of work. Um, some are being kind of critical of Michael a little bit because it's his production company and these are some bullying people think of. I, I just find that uh, you're, you're getting to see every part of them, even though it is his production company. But just a quick thought on what you've seen so far. And um, and thank goodness for this to come out, This you know them pushing it up early because it really does give me something exciting to look forward to sports-wise on a Sunday. Yeah, I think it would have been much appreciated even under normal circumstances. They were going to air it in June so that it would be airing around the NBA Finals. Uh, it's even more appreciated now because people obviously are hungry for original sports programming. But just on its own terms, it isn't good. It's magnificent. In the Wall Street Journal, Ken Burns, whom I've known for a long time, made the comment that we wouldn't do it this way. At PBS, there are certain rules about 
whether the subject can be involved in any aspect of the broadcast and how it's put together. But things can be judged on their own terms. And when Ken sees it, and he hadn't seen it at the time that he made uh, the comments to the Wall Street Journal, when Ken sees it, he will realize, I'm sure, like most of us, that on its own terms, this is really good. It's not just entertaining, but it has elements of legitimate history. It'll be part of the historical record. And there are journalistic elements to it as well. It's not purely any one thing or another, but knowing Jason Hare, who's the primary person behind uh, the production. He was a young producer at HBO in the early 2000s when I was there, and I could tell right away that he was exceptionally talented uh, and had a great eye for things. And he put together a good body of work even prior to this, but this is going to be his magnum opus. This is going to win every award uh, in sports television that you can think of. Uh, knowing, Knowing him and knowing what went into it, and as you watch it, people might have made some assumptions, but now that they've seen eight of the ten episodes, it's pretty clear that if any punches were pulled, there weren't many, because they get into some uncomfortable subjects with Michael Jordan. And according to what Jason has told me and others, he never said once, I can't answer that question, I'm not going to go there, don't put that in, don't put this in. Um, so, yeah, I think without... <clears throat> without Jordan's cooperation, which is mostly in allowing the footage that was shot behind the scenes in 97 and 98 uh, to be used. And without him sitting down three separate times for lengthy interviews, you don't have this. But I don't feel uh, a controlling hand from Michael Jordan or anything that troubles me about this. Uh, this is not just entertaining, it's it's revealing. It's a really terrific piece of work. Yeah, and I, as I said, I just want more and more. You know that's a good documentary. When there's 10 parts and you're like, I need more. 97, 98 is your first year doing play-by-play for the NBA on NBC. Uh, you know, obviously the reasons why Marv has to step aside. How excited were you to get a chance to do NBA play-by-play? And then what part of that season, I mean, was it early on? Did you realize, I mean, I, it's, I know it's obviously 30 years ago, but do you realize, oh, well, this could be Jordan's last season, and I'm going to get to do some history. But just being able to do play-by-play, and then you're, you're going to call that last that last basket uh, possibly of his career. Of course it isn't. But uh, just the excitement of doing play-by-play for NBA that year and then realizing, wait, this, this could be some sort of special year here too. Well, I had a history in basketball play-by-play. One of my earliest um, assignments was doing the Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA on KMOX. And as the first episode of – The Last Dance showed for one season long ago, 1979-80, I was the television voice of a then less than mediocre Chicago Bulls team. And when the NBA came to NBC, Dick Ebersole and David Stern, who worked closely on it, at first had asked me to be the lead play-by-play guy. And I said, Marv Albert has to be your lead play-by-play guy. I mean, I can do basketball. I used to do it pretty well. I could get up to speed again. And I did do some games when we had doubleheaders. I did do some games in the early 90s. Uh, And someone in Mars' family passed away uh, early on in our coverage of the NBA. And I did the All-Star game in Charlotte. I think it was 1991. But I felt, and so did they after a very brief conversation, that the best use of the roster was for Marv to call the games and for me to host the games. From the studio during the regular season, 
but from the site during the finals. And one of the things people remember about the NBA on NBC is the dramatic openings that we used to put together. I would write them and narrate them, and uh, the production team did wonderful jobs with the videos, and that kind of set the stage, especially in the most dramatic games in the finals. That kind of set the stage, and in many cases, people tell me, raised goosebumps, even when they watch it now on YouTube. And then I would bring it on the air and kind of set the scene for 10 minutes or so, and then we would throw it to Marv with Mike Fratello or whomever. Magic Johnson was sometimes there. Um, and then when Marv had to step aside for a while, uh, Dick Ebersol asked me if I would take on the play-by-play duties. And the first thing I said to him was, of course I'll do it. I'll do whatever you need me to do, and, and I love the NBA, but Marv may be able to come back at some point. And when that point arrives, I will step aside for Marv without hesitation. And that's exactly what happened after three seasons. Uh, so I did that last season of the Bulls dynasty. Then in between, there was a lockout-shortened season, and the Spurs beat the Knicks in a final that isn't memorable except for the fact that it was the first of several Spurs championships. And then the last year that I did play-by-play was the first year of a three-title run for Shaq and Kobe uh, with the Lakers. So, And I was excited to come back and do it. Uh, it took, you know, several games before the rust came off. And I was working with Isaiah Thomas, who had just retired as a player and obviously was an important person in NBA history. But Isaiah was new to it as well. So I was getting the rust off and he was learning the ropes as we went. But luckily for us, Doug Collins became available at midseason. And when Doug joined us, it took some of the pressure off Isaiah. And by then I figured it out and gotten into a groove. And to answer your initial question, I was very much aware that this could be the final season for Michael Jordan and therefore the end of the Bulls dynasty. And many of the broadcasts reflected that. Some of the openings that we did before we came on the air, they were taken to a game seven in the Eastern Conference Finals by the Pacers. So they could have lost that game. And in fact, in game seven on the Bulls home court, They trailed big early in the game, so the dynasty could have ended right there, and our opening reflected that. And then when they led game, when they led the finals three games to one, heading into game five in Chicago, you might have expected they would wrap it up there, and we talked about it and framed it that way. It didn't happen that way. And then game six in Salt Lake City is coming down to the wire, but the game is so close, you have to operate on two tracks. The drama and excitement of this game simply because it's the NBA Finals. Even if it was two different teams, you didn't have the dynasty, you didn't have the specter of Michael Jordan, this is a heck of a situation in the NBA Finals. So you got to be covering that. There's also the distinct possibility there's going to be a Game 7 on Utah's home floor, so they have a very good chance to win not just this game, but the whole series. But at the same time, it was always in the back of my mind that this could be the end. The curtain could come down for one of the epic careers and epic dynasties in the history of American sports. And what I said at the end of that broadcast reflects that. I haven't seen uh, any of The Last Dance until it airs. So I don't have any advanced uh, knowledge beyond my sense of things. And Jason Hare, the producer, has told me that that last broadcast uh, from Game 6 and 98 is a big part of Episode 10, the last episode of The Last Dance. 
And you say that I watched it today. You quote maybe the last shot he takes in the NBA after after he hits it. How well did you know him? Did you get to know him at all? I know Ahmad Rashad was in his car pretty much doing interviews, and uh, Ahmad kind of got the the Michael Jordan treatment. But did you get to know Michael at all, real well, personally, and any good interactions or fun stories? Real well, no. But we were very positive professional acquaintances. Um. I had to ask. I felt it was my responsibility. I had to ask David Stern some direct questions when issues of Michael Jordan's gambling came up in 1993, and it was during the NBA Finals with Phoenix. But Michael is an intelligent guy, and he understood that that was my job. Um, So I never got any uh, blowback from him in that respect. Michael is great with kids. And my son, Keith, who was just a little guy then, um, the first NBA finals he went to with me, he was six years old, uh, and every other final subsequently, he was at at least some of the games that Michael Jordan played in. And Michael always had a smile for him when he saw him courtside. Sometimes I'd bring him to practices on the off days. Uh, when he wasn't with me, Michael would say, Hey, where's, where's the little guy? Will he be here for the game tomorrow night? Um, so he was great that way. And he had that big winning smile. Uh, so we were very good professional acquaintances, but I never was in a social situation with Michael. And we talked a little bit about, you know, the gambling there and it, it does, you know, obviously we've seen it in the, in the series. There, is there a, a, a wonderful, a great athlete, top 10 all time who doesn't, who isn't tarnished? I mean, there's always like a speck on, on somebody like LeBron, I can't really think of it, but all these guys always have some sort of spec, right? I mean, is that part of the greatness? Is someone's going to get you? There's some sort of vice that these guys have that, that's going to come out? Is I'm just thinking out loud here, but... Well, you know, it to a reasonable person, unless you're talking about something horrific, it humanizes them. Uh, what makes them special, interesting, noteworthy, in some sense admirable, is the talent they have, what they do with it, and the aspects of their personality and character that make them who they are. That doesn't mean that they're two-dimensional heroes on a Wheaties box or in, in some kind of hagiographic film or book, and that that's the only way we can look at them. And if we see anything that indicates something less than perfection, it should diminish our uh, regard for what they were able to accomplish. That's a very shallow and an immature view. Uh, on the other hand, there's an aspect now with social media where you're not just talking about objective facts and, well, yeah, maybe he or she could have done better in this situation and it's part of their biography, so we'll weigh that. There's so much rancor and nonsense on social media, and some of that ethos has seeped into what passes for the mainstream media as well. There's a difference between legitimate, constructive, responsible criticism and cheap shots. There's a difference between tongue-in-cheek irreverence and just mean-spirited snarkiness. But it seems like the latter is the coin of the realm if you're talking about much of social media and what you can find online. So when occasionally I've come across these Michael Jordan-LeBron James debates, it's not necessary to say that LeBron is choke because teams didn't always win the finals. Or watching the last dance, I could see that LeBron James couldn't hold a candle to Michael Jordan. In that world, people, shades of gray, nuance, little distinctions don't matter. It's always high, low, up, down, good, bad, yes, no. So 
I guess in the world we're in now, nobody gets out unscathed. A misdemeanor is turned into a felony. Minor flaws that just humanize people become, if someone resents them, become somehow defining. You know, there's nothing we can do about that. I don't see it getting better anytime soon. Yeah, I, did, I honestly didn't know there was a Michael Jordan versus LeBron de- debate, Bob. Sorry, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been pretty much <laughs> undercover. It just takes place in whispered tones and back alleys somewhere. Was there anything on, like, on Tim Tebow back in the day, too, that they talked about him every day? I didn't see that during his football career, if he could play in the NFL. Um, yeah, I, it was undercovered, I thought. I digress. Uh, another topic, obviously, MLB is kind of the first t- uh, sport talking about kind of dipping their toe back in the waters. And and then, of course, it can't be easy. There's players versus own, uh, owners. And I understand it. Um, I, and I just don't think fans really want to hear about uh, squabbling at all. And I, and I know that there is a reason why the Players Association has to kind of uh, hold their ground. But what do you think at this point? Is I mean, this is really fresh off today's newspaper. Like yeah. this is happening right now as we speak. Do you think? I mean, M- MLB wants to play. They want to play without fans. They want to make money. Just any thought on uh, what's happening right now with MLB? Should they play? Should they play without fans? And then, d- should there be any arguing at this point, or should they just try and get this thing worked out this year? Work on their CBA next year. Well, you have two hurdles to clear. The most important one is. Can they construct not just a workable schedule and different different postseason formats and whatnot? That's easy enough to do, and people will accept things that they might not accept over a full season. Uh, they'll accept that in these unique circumstances. But they also have to assure that not only are the players safe, but even without fans, there's a large contingent of people that are necessary for these games to take place, and their health and safety and security has to be taken into consideration as well. And what happens if on one team there are three or four cases and then everybody has to be quarantined from that team? What does that do, even if everybody else appears to be healthy and safe? What does that do to the schedule? So I I guess they have to have some contingencies in place for all of that. But what you alluded to, Brad, is the dispute with the Players Association. What the players and their representatives agreed to at the time that baseball was suspended was prorated salaries. So to make it simple, if a player was to make $2 million in 2020 and they played half a season, which is what they now propose, that player would make $1 million. But now the owners are saying, look, we didn't anticipate these circumstances. We're not exactly sure what our revenues are going to be, but they're going to be much less substantial than we would have otherwise thought. We're going to get some television money, but it's not going to be as much as if we played a full season, even with the additional postseason games. And we're getting zip at the ballpark itself. Overall in baseball, ballpark revenue, tickets, concessions, souvenirs, parking, all that stuff, is about 40% of the overall industry revenue. But in St. Louis, for example, it's closer to 50%. Because the Cardinals draw well over $3 million every year. And while they're very popular on local and regional TV, they can't expect to have as much TV revenue as the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Cubs, for example. So what the owners are saying is, let's just do a 50-50 revenue split for this year only. And we're making it clear this is, does not establish any kind of precedent for what happens afterwards in the next CBA. It's for this unique circumstance only. 
But Tony Clark, who heads the Players Association, is saying we have never agreed to revenue sharing, which is true. Every other sport in one form or another has it of the four major sports, football, hockey, basketball, they all have it in one way or another. Baseball does not. I don't think that's a winning argument in the court of public opinion for the players because everybody is saying, look, in one way or another, just about everybody's taking a hit here. So you guys have to play ball, no pun intended, under these circumstances. Now, could there be some give on the owner's side? Yeah. Um, but if the players are just dug in and the owners are similarly dug in with their proposal, I think there's at least a small chance that there's no baseball. And what good does that do anybody? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, at one point I was when they, you know, no fans in the stands. I just thought, well, then why play? Well, about a month into it, I said, let's play. I'll watch whatever. I'm not watching KBO, but I would watch Mike Trout playing an empty stadium out in California. I guess, um, I, and I assume that you'd go broadcast it or broadcast it from Secaucus if they asked you. Yeah, if they resume, whatever they ask me to do, I'll do. And there's a variety of scenarios. Uh, we could be doing it from a broadcast booth in an otherwise empty ballpark. Or I think there'll be a lot of broadcasts done in many sports simply off monitors in a studio someplace. Where, I mean, in your lifetime, I mean, we all are obviously just going through this for the first time. But what what is it in your mind, like, as you look at this, just how how awkward is it for Bob Costas to see the world be like this? I just, I'm just curious. <laughs> not, to, you know, not as awkward as you might think. I've been around a long time. Uh, maybe that gives me a little bit more perspective on it. Do I miss sports? Of course I do. Uh, is it part of the normal rhythm of my life that when springtime comes and, and baseball is back with us, that I'm engaged with that? Of course it is. But am I going stir crazy? No. No. When it comes back, and whatever role they ask me to play, I'll be ready to do that. But uh, I'm not uh, I'm not out on a ledge over all of it. Yeah, like I said, I'm eating a lot of Hot Pockets, so I'm good. Um, th- this does give me a chance to kind of scroll through some of the classic. I always like to check on your career and do some fun. I've never asked you about Basketball, uh, a fine film from the uh, creators of South Park. I'm just yes. I'm curious when you see the script and what you're going to say. I guess, first of all, just being contacted has got to be obviously a thrill no matter what, right? But tell me a little bit about how those guys contact you, and then you see the script, and then the, the what you're going to say to Al Michaels. You have a famous line in there. Just give me a little bit about uh, just that, getting getting that role, and then, then looking it over and saying, oh, I'm going to say that? All right. Sounds good. Well, it wasn't the South Park guys who contacted me, although I was aware that they were involved with the script, and they are the stars of the movie. It was the Zucker brothers who had done the Naked Gun series and Airplane. Great, good fun. I loved those films. And the South Park guys also obviously had great standing. My agent read the script. They sent it to him. And he said, if I were you, I wouldn't do this. And I'm thinking, well, he was an older guy, and maybe his sensibility about this isn't the same as me. And these, after all, the guys who did Airplane and the Naked Gun and the South Park guys, it has to be okay. So I agreed to do it. Plus, I had never, I didn't know that down the road, I'd do plenty with Al Michaels. But Al and I were friends, but we had never done anything on air or on film together. So that was part of the incentive, too. And we got there, uh, and it was the last day of filming. We didn't see or cross paths with anyone else who's in the film. And there's a cavalcade of sports figures as well as actors like Ernest Borgnine and Robert Vaughn and Yasmin Bleeth. 
and the South Park guys, but a whole bunch of sports people are in it. Kareem's in it. Reggie Jackson's in it. A zillion sports announcers are in it. But Al and I just shot our scenes alone. And in the first hour or two, we're thinking, this stuff is pretty funny in kind of a lowbrow way, but it's pretty funny. And then they asked me to do the line, which is infamous. And my first thing was, you know, I've done everything you've asked. I can't do this. Come on. I can't do this. And they said, just do it for us. <laughs> just, just, you know, the crew will get a kick out of it. It's been a long series of weeks of shooting. Just do it for us. And if it doesn't work, we won't use it. Well, in their minds, not only did it work and it's in the film, but they used it in their commercials for the film and in the trailer that people saw in movie theaters when they went to see other movies. And in fact, it comes out at about the same time as Saving Private Ryan. So I am at the Kirkwood Theater with some friends to see Saving Private Ryan. And now the previews of other films come on. And one of them is Basketball, which had a very, very short run in theaters. It, it, was, it was on DVD or whatever the technology was in the late 90s in about a month. But in any case, the preview comes on. And some people in the theater must have seen me in the lobby as I was getting my ticket. And I'm sitting like sort of down to the right, maybe 10 rows from the front. And from the back of the theater in the dark comes one word, Bob. Like, like how could you? Bob. So even then I realized how, how ridiculous it was. And now it shows up now and then on somewhere on cable TV. And I found out that for my son's generation and for others, it really is a kind of same thing as with Pootie Tang, which I was also in with Chris Rock and Wanda Sykes and others. And at first you say, what am I getting into? But then a decade or more down the road, you say, yeah, people got a kick out of it. No harm done. And you're in the Screen Actors Guild then, right? You get DVDs sent to you for Oscars, no? That- uh, no. Oh, okay. No, I, I, I don't think I'm full-fledged enough. I, I have an interesting filmography. <laughs> I, was in, I was in the paper in a scene with Glenn Close and Jason Robards, Ron I, Howard's film. I love that movie, and you can never find it like streaming anywhere. I really do. Yeah. I love, Michael Keaton's in that, I think, too, right? My, my, Michael Keaton? pre-Superman, I think. Yeah. Maybe it was after Superman. I don't remember. But anyway, I don't mean Superman. I meant Batman. I meant it, Batman. It was, I think, 1994. A um, couple more minutes. The other uh, big thing you did, and I was just curious, because I, I would assume you uh, hosted the pregame show for Cheers live as they're in the bar, I think the Bull and Finch Bar in Boston, right? I think it was live after or before. Yeah, well, the pregame, the pregame we shot on the Cheers set in uh, – in Los Angeles a few weeks before. Um, and then when the show aired, the cast had been uh, brought to Boston for their post party uh, at the original Cheers bar. And by the time that moment arrived, they were way into their cups. And it was my job to move Ted Danson and Rhea Perlman and, and everybody else uh, through um, Woody Harrelson, I guess, was was part of it. Shelley Long to to kind of move them through the bar and introduce them to these various people, most of whom were sports stars. John Havlicek and 
Jim Rice was there. All these Boston sports personalities were there. But by then, the Cheers cast was, how shall we put this, somewhat distracted. <laughs> I remember. It probably has to be like a sober guy going to a drunk party and seeing every – but I was curious. I guess, I guess you didn't really – did you get to have fun with that or was it more of a job? Because I would assume trying to do that, it's more of a job than actually having fun. Well, now that I think of it, Leno was also there. So it was me and Leno. Um, I guess what it became, now that I think of it. They that, did the night show after. Live. Yeah, the special took up two hours of prime time. Then you had the local news on all the affiliates. And then the Tonight Show came from the bar in Boston. So Leno was actually the guy presiding over it. But they had me there because Jay, even though he's from Boston, is not that avid of a sports fan. So I was there kind of as a, a safety net, just in case he didn't recognize Cam Neely or something. So it was me and Jay, but when it turned to the sports part, it was more me, and, and I helped them navigate it. Uh, and yes, when it was over, when, that, when the show was over an hour later, then, then we all got into, relatively speaking, a party mode, but not as deep into it as the Cheers cast was. Well, it was fun. I remember it. It was my favorite show. Uh, I have a few more seconds here with you, so I have a few quick hits. You're like the most famous St. Louis, and you, John Hamm, Chuck Berry, uh, you know, you're, you're like one of ours. So, uh, well, Joe, Joe Buck these days actually is on more widely seen things uh, than I am, so I, I have to put Joe on that list. You're more of emeritus, though. You've got this sort of Tom Brokaw, Walter Cronkite. Joe's still in his, his career. You're doing MLB Network, but you're kind of at that point where we, we look to you for historical things. I was going to ask you that, too. Like, you, you see yourself, like, every documentary. Here's one on the spirits. Let's get Bob. He was, he was there. Richard Jewell. You had a wonderful Richard Jewell story, the Jordan documentary. I mean, what does that mean when you get to, to look? I mean, or do you get a chance? Is, is there a point where you're at that you can actually sort of – Take a deep breath and go, eh, that's a pretty good career. I'm not done, but I've done some stuff that was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and they keep asking me to do these retrospective things, but it didn't start uh, when I entered middle age or, or later. Uh, Ken Burns asked me to be on his, as part of his baseball documentary in the early 90s. I was still in my late 30s then. Um, and at the, at the end of the century... Remember the ESPN Sports Century series where they picked the 50 greatest American athletes of the 20th century, uh, and I was part of that. So maybe I'm an old soul. Maybe even when I was relatively younger, they still thought of me as someone who had some some sense of context. Maybe. Who knows? I haven't uh, thought about it very much. I was going to say it's possibly because you're a broadcaster who's been doing it a long time and can put some good sentences together. I've never heard anybody who can walk through a sentence. So these are just some quick hits, and then I'm going to let you go. Since I said you were a our, our St. Louis celebrity, one of the top five, uh, tell us your best actual celebrity dinner party. You're, you're at a celebrity dinner. Can you give us a few big names, and, and uh, what's the best one you can remember? If there is one. Maybe there's not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking a specific it. one. I can remember, but through the years and doing the late night show uh, that followed David Letterman on NBC in the late eighties and early nineties and wasn't confined to sports. I made a lot of acquaintances and friendships there uh, with people like Billy Crystal and John Mellencamp, people like that. Uh, And some of those people in turn came to St. Louis for the annual events we used to have at the Fox theater uh, for Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital, did that for 25, 26 years. So uh, that's a long list of people now that I think of it. Kevin Costner was on that list, and 
Tony Bennett, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, the late, great Gary Shandling, Bill Murray came by one year. Uh, Paul Simon, the great Paul Simon, did it for us. Um, a very long list of musical and, uh, and comedy figures that from roughly my generation pretty much would make up a galaxy of stars. So I was really lucky in that regard. Any of these, out of all the most famous people you know, is there one that you can just text and during a ball game and say, oh, Bruce Springsteen's, well, you know, hey, Bruce, what do you think of that play? Or, is there, do you have one famous name that you're like, well... well usually I answer every question as candidly as you can put it to me. I have an aversion to celebrity name dropping. Um, when people, when people used to refer to me as a celebrity, I've always thought that celebrity is kind of an empty concept. If you do something that's worthwhile and it involves public recognition and people appreciate it, that's great. Celebrity for celebrity's sake or name dropping. Um, it's just, it makes me uncomfortable. So yes, to answer your question in a general way, yes, there are people that I that I hear from. Just yesterday, I did something on CNN and, and heard from a couple of people uh, whose names you would recognize because they happen to see it. But <clears throat> you got to have some private life. So let's leave it at that. I like it. <laughs> I like that. Well, I appreciate your time. You mentioned MLB yeah. Network, and every once in a while, I get a chance to work on some of those games with you. And I remember... Uh, when we were, when I was younger, I was in the early nineties doing a cable access show. You let me do an interview with you and I'm going to show it right now. You gave me an autograph and it says to Brad, see you in the booth someday, Bob Costas. I think that's from 1993. And I will tell you that I got to watch you kind of prepare one day. I was kind of over your shoulder. I don't know if you noticed, but I was just watching cause I was interested. I was like, you know, when am I, what if this is the last game I get to work with Bob and get to see him do this? So I got to tell you, it's always a thrill, but watching you prepare for a baseball game, and I'm, I'm not trying to be funny here. It was, you know, it was like watching Paul McCartney write a song or, you know, you're one of the guys that uh, people think of um, in broadcast history. So I just want to tell you that. I wanted to let you know it was fun. It's always fun to see you around and I appreciate your time and hopefully we'll see you at the ballpark again soon. That's most important. Thanks, Brad. Of course, in deference to Paul McCartney, that was yesterday. <laughs> well done. And has he texted you? You can just say yes or no, or just no, no comment. No, Paul, Paul did not text me. Okay. Paul did not text me. That's what I want to know. Well, I thank you, Bob. There's other musical figures who might. <laughs> uh, and I crossed paths with Paul once or twice after I interviewed him on later, and he was very friendly and appreciative. But uh, I, I, I tend to doubt that, uh, that I'm the only person that would be uh, vying for a moment of Paul McCartney's attention. So <laughs> I've left him alone. Are you saying it was a long and winding road? Oh, that was good. Thank you. That was good. I'm going yeah. to leave it right there, Bob. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think you should because I feel fine. <laughs> Help! <laughs> I need somebody. All right, Bob. Th thank you so much, as always. Uh, an annual treat. And uh, thank you so much for uh, kind of indulging me in the uh, basketball stories. Uh, thank you, Bob. See you, Bob. Thank you.